Well, once again, it is good to see you here today. If you're new, if you happen to be joining us here for the first time, a special welcome to you. I'm Dan Min. I'm, one, uh, I'm the pastor here uh, at ACF, and uh, it is my joy to welcome you and to worship with you. And it's my honor to bring God's word to you here this mo- morning. And I, I hope... I hope you've come in ready to receive what I believe God has for us and for our time here today. Um, once again, John, can we just bring up the house lights just a little bit? That, that would be awesome. Thank you very much. Last week, if you were here at ACF, we kicked off a brand new series called Live In My Best Life. And for the next several weeks, we're going to be exploring the abundant life of Christ. Jesus said in John 10.10 that he came to give us life and have it abundantly. He wants us to have this abundant life. And so today, I want to begin unpacking what this abundant life might look like. In fact, I've titled today's message, The Battlefield of the Mind. The Battlefield of the Mind. If you're taking notes down, you can jot that down as the header, as the title for today's message. The Battlefield of the Mind. Friends, I would submit to you today that one of the biggest hurdles that stand in the way of the people of God walking in the abundant life of Christ is our thought life. Our thought life often gets in the way of us accessing and living in the fullness of the abundant life that Christ has for you. Uh, Friends, I don't know if you've ever felt like this before. I know I certainly have, where you feel like the biggest battles in your life are not necessarily the ones that are happening around you, but they're often the ones that are happening inside of you, right? It's the battles up here that often derail you and throw you off. Let me give an example. Yesterday, we hiked Mount Nittany, and uh, some of you know this story because I shared it with you this morning. We hiked Mount Nittany, and uh, I decided to stay back uh, to wait for our Thon family because I knew that our Thon family was joining us for the hike. And so we, I sent the rest of the group ahead of us, and there was, a, it was a, a bunch of us that showed up for the hike. And I said, why don't you guys go ahead, and we'll catch up to you. And so I, I stayed behind with one of our leaders to wait for our Thon family. And, and when they got there, we set off, except when we set off, we went in the opposite direction from the rest of the group. Now, just, just a disclaimer, I had no business of leading anyone on a trail. Like, I am the worst with directions. Like, I would be lost without Google Maps. I mean, so, so here, here we are, like, we're, we're on this trail going off, and, and it occurs to me, I think we might be going in the wrong direction. And so I, I pulled up my uh, my. GPS on my phone to try to figure out where we needed to go, and the GPS is telling me that we need to basically cut through the woods and straight up the mountain to catch the rest of our group. And so here I am with, uh, with uh, three uh, other folks, one of them being our Thon child. I look up to where we need to go, and I say, that's not bad. I mean, we, we could do that. Church, I was wrong. I was dead wrong. I mean, I look up, and, I, and so I say, okay, all we got to do is just cut through the woods. And here we are, wading through brush and, and all kinds of rock formations, literally scaling the side of Mount Nittany. Like, at some points, we had to, kid you not, church, we had to crawl on all fours at certain points so that we didn't tumble back down the mountain. And so here we are, and our poor Thon child, like, she, she had to take out her inhaler. Like, she's, she has a lung condition. Her dad has a lung condition and a bad foot. Every 10 steps, they're stopping. I mean, like my poor thon child, we're like, we're going to, I mean, cancer cannot, but this mountain might. I mean, like they, it was one of those things where like, we're going to die out here. I mean, I, I, here's 
honest confession. Church, I was trying to put on a brave book. I was trying to smile, t- t- turn everything into a positive moment, right? Internally, I was freaking the heck out. I was thinking to myself, this is it. This is my last day. And, and, and sure enough, we go up and, and I hear all these thoughts swirling in my head. My life is done. I, we're, I'm responsible for all these. My thought life was running amok. Now, look, we made it all right. We found our group and, and, and we, we, we made it back home in one piece. But when you think about our thought life in that context, we could kind of laugh about it. Ha ha, you know. You got lost on Mount Nittany, whatever. You know, it's, it's, it, it wasn't funny in the moment. But looking back, we can laugh about it. But listen, when your thoughts start negatively impacting, say, your relationships in your life, the people that you love in deep and significant ways, when your thought life starts affecting your view of yourself and your sense of self-worth and significance and value, when your thought life starts impacting the way you see God and how you approach him, well, now it's, it's no longer a laughing matter, is it? You see, the, the battle that goes on in our minds is a serious battle that requires careful attention. In fact, today I want to turn our attention to an actual battle that took place in history that will show us how to handle the battles in our minds, the battles that take place up here that so often derail us in life. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel 17. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and we'll have some folks coming around, and they'll get one of these Bibles to you. If you're following along with us in these hardback Bibles, we're on page 239. 239 is where we are in these Bibles. 1 Samuel is in the Old Testament. It's after the book of Judges, Ruth, and then you come to 1 Samuel. Now, today we're going to look at a very familiar story that virtually everyone knows about, okay, both Christians and non-Christians alike, whether you grew up in the church or not, the chances are you heard of the story. It's the greatest underdog story ever, and it's the story of David and Goliath, a classic. If you grew up in Sunday school, you probably remember the Sunday school teachers talking about this story of David and Goliath. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the story, it's this underdog story, as I mentioned. It's the story of this young little shepherd boy named David who steps up to this giant monster of a man named Goliath. Goliath is covered from head to toe in full military garb, and he came ready to take some lives. I mean, that, that's how he shows up on the scene. David, on the other hand, shows up on the scene with a slingshot. I mean, talk about showing up to a gunfight with a knife, right? I mean, this is the underdog story, and, and, and you begin to wonder as the story unfolds, how in the world is this fight going to go down? Spoiler alert, David wins, in case you didn't know that. David conquers Goliath and wins the battle, and it sends shockwaves all throughout the land. But today, today I don't care so much to look at the actual fight that went down between David and Goliath, although the fight itself is fascinating and it's an exciting fight, but to me, this setup is what really has my attention. It's the moments leading up to the battle that I want to spend some time looking at. And so pick me up at 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to pick up from verse 4. 1 Samuel 17 verse 4. We'll also put the text up here on the screen. And uh, I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version. But uh, go ahead and open up to whatever version you have and follow along with us. I want us to get reacquainted 
with this Goliath. Many of us know the name, but you might not have a sense for who he is. And so uh, I want us to read this. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 4, the text introduces Goliath in this way. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. Now pause right here. Friends, what this text is saying, just layman's translation, layman's term, the dude was intimidating. Okay, that's what the text is saying. The text is simply indicating this is a guy you did not want to mess with. He's not a guy you wanted to get upset. This was not a guy you wanted to run into a dark alley somewhere in the middle of the night. He could do some serious damage. That's all the text is saying. It's cubits wide and height, span, whatever. What is he talking about? The dude was intimidating. That's all you need to know. Okay, that, that's, that's what we're, we're, we're gathering. Now, we get a sense for what he looks like. And then the text proceeds and it begins to describe what he begins to say. He begins to talk. But more specifically, he begins to taunt his enemies. In verse 8, it says this. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But... If I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine, Goliath, he proceeds to say, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Some translations say they were greatly terrified. And so look, not only was Goliath this giant of a man, this intimidating figure, the dude had a mouth on him, okay? The dude had a mouth. He's trash talking here. I mean, he's like the ancient oversized Conor McGregor, if you will, right? Like this is guy, he's just talking, sitting, and yapping it up and mocking the Israelite army, the armies of God. And he's like, come on, bring your best. Show me what you got. Now the text takes a turn here. Okay, we move away from Goliath, and now we turn to be introduced to David, who is the protagonist of the story. And in verse 12, we're introduced to David this way. Now, David was the son of an Ephratite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. And the names of his three sons who went to battle with Saul, with King Saul, were Eliab, the firstborn, the next to him, Abinadab, the original dabber, and the third, Shammah. I'm sorry, I, I had to. I'm, just like, I'm, I'm a dad. The corn just flows out of me, okay? It's just, it's just get used to it. David, now David, in verse 14, we see that David, he was the youngest. We've already established that just a few verses ago. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem, for he was a shepherd boy, okay? Verse 16, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Now, 
The fact that David is the youngest of the sons shows up so clearly in the next couple of verses, it's almost funny. Je- Jesse, David's father, he looks at, he looks at uh, little David, uh, the shepherd boy, and he says, David, you're not quite fit for battle. You're not quite fit to be a soldier out on the front lines of the war fighting this, this army of Philistines. And so what Jesse does Instead, he sends uh, David off on a little errand. David is Jesse's errand boy. And in verse 17, Jesse says to David, Take take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand and see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. I mean, isn't that such a younger brother thing to be tasked with? Like, go bring these goods to your brothers who are doing the real work. Shepherd boy, little boy, go, go in and, and bring these, do, do, do this errand for me. And while you're there, go bring back some word on how they're doing, would you? And so Jesse sends David on this seemingly insignificant task. Little does David know the trajectory of his life will forever change from this little errand which is a whole sermon in and of itself. Now, David, being the obedient son he is, he gets up the next day, and he does as his father tells him. Now, I want you to just hang with me, okay? We're going to continue to proceed in the story, but you might be wondering at this point, what in the world does any of this have to do with the battlefield of the mind? Like, what does this have to do with my thought life? And friends, I'm telling you, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Just hang with me, okay? It's, it's, it, we'll, we'll start unpacking that. Now, David runs this errand. He brings the loaves of bread and the cheese and all these things, all these goods to the front lines of the battle line. And when David shows up to fulfill his father's errand, he enters this scene where all of the Israelite army is essentially cowering back from the Philistine army. Remember, they were afraid, dismayed, and terrified. And so here's the Israelite army essentially cowering back and waiting to see what happens in the next few moments. And in the midst of all of that... He hears, David hears the voice of Goliath yelling and mocking the armies of God's people. And so he's a little flabbergasted. He's a little confused. He's like, I, I thought my older brothers were out fighting a war. Like, and so he begins to ask the soldiers uh, on, the, on the battlefield, like, hey, what's going on here? What's the deal here? Why, why aren't any of you guys stepping up to this guy? Like, this guy is making a mockery of us, the people of God. Like, why aren't you doing anything? Why are you not fighting? And no one has a really great answer. The text doesn't say, here's why, David. Let me give you a three-point reason, three-point sermon why we're not fighting this battle. No one really has a great reason. In fact, his oldest brother, Eliab, overhears David talking to his fellow soldiers, and he begins to get ticked. He's, he's upset. He's bothered that his youngest brother comes to this battlefield and seems to indicate that he can somehow do better than these trained soldiers. He, he, Eliab begins to be, become really bothered. He's wondering, what in the world does this little snot rag know about fighting a war? Right? Like, in fact, it, if you jump down to verse 28, Eliab says this to David. David, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Do you hear the condescending tone? Like, it's like, what are you, what are you doing here? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. In other words, David, you don't belong here. You don't belong. Know your place. This isn't the place for little shepherd boys. Go back to where you came from and tend to your little sheep. 
But David pays no attention to his brother, and he begins to continue to ask the soldiers on the battlefield, what are we going to do about this guy, guys? This Goliath, whoever this guy is, what are we going to do about this? Now the talk begins to build up to a point where word now gets to King Saul. And King Saul hears David causing all this commotion up in the battlefield. And so Saul finally calls David in. And I love the exchange between David and Saul. We're going to jump to verse 32. Look what David says to King Saul. David says, let no man's heart fail because of him. He's talking about Goliath here. He says, let no man's heart fail because of this Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. In other words, if these chumps won't do it, I'll do it. Send me. I got this. But now listen to, listen to Saul's response here. And it's not, it's not a surprising response. In fact, it's a very logical, reasonable response. In verse 33, Saul says to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. I want to pause right here for just a minute. Using this story in 1 Samuel 17, using the story of David and Goliath, I want to show you today three specific enemies that pose a threat to our thought life. I want to, I want to expose three specific enemies that pose a threat to our thought life. When it comes to the battlefield of our minds, the battlefield that takes place in this space right here, there are three Goliaths, so to speak, that stand against us, and I want to expose these enemies for what they are. And then I want to give you three counterattacks for each of them. I want to give you a counterattack for each of them. The first enemy of our thought life is the inner critic. It's the inner critic. You see, friends, you and I may not have an older brother, Eliab, saying things like, you don't belong here. You don't have what it takes. You're just a little, you fill in the blank. You're just a little shepherd boy. You're just a little insignificant nothing. You're just nobody. This is who you are. And you might fill in the blank however you will, but you and I might not have an older brother, Eliab, saying things like that to us. But how many of you know, every single one of us has an Eliab living right inside of us. You may not have a Saul, a King Saul, saying to you, but you're just a youth. You have no chance going up against this, uh, up against this enemy. You, you, you can't go against this guy who has way more experience than you, who's way more gifted than you, who's way more qualified than you. You don't have what it takes. You can't do this. You might not have a King Saul yapping in your ears, but how many of you know you've got a King Saul right inside here? who says to us, you can't do this. You don't have what it takes. You're not qualified enough. That voice is called the inner critic. And that inner critic inside of every single one of us loves to feed us lies, self-doubt. It loves to feed on our insecurities, and it loves to feed our self-talk. How many of you know we all have self-talk? We all have scripts in our minds and tapes that we play in our heads that we live by. Honestly, friends, almost on a weekly basis, I've got to fight my own personal self-talk. And I've got to resist the urge to give into it. Can, can I just be transparent with you here just for a moment? I can't tell you how many times I go home after a Sunday service feeling like a complete failure. And, and I, I, don't, I don't, like, think it up here I feel it down here. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Like, it, there's a difference between like cognitively kind of getting something versus like 
feeling something at your gut level like, oh, this is true about me. Like, that's, that's how I feel often. I, I'm not talking about like every now and then, almost on a weekly basis. The demons that I've got to fight is when I go home after a Sunday service, I've, I feel like a complete failure. For instance, if I feel like my sermon wasn't great, I will feel horrible about myself for the rest of the day. Maybe even into the next morning on Monday. Now, I, I know I, I joke around a lot talking about like how I'm, I'm like the world's greatest preacher like, and my sermons are so... No, like I'm, I'm kidding, okay? I, I hope you know that. In fact, what's behind that is this deep insecurity. Am I enough? Do I have what it takes to feed the people of God in a way that would be fruitful and productive for them? If I feel like my sermon wasn't great, and oftentimes I don't, I don't feel like they're, I, I feel like they could be better. I feel like I could, and so if I, in those moments, I will be wrecked for the rest of the day. If I notice that someone didn't come back to church one week after meeting them the previous week, I'll convince myself they didn't come back because of my interaction with them. They didn't come back because they didn't like the pastor. If I feel like I didn't get enough laughs in, this, in, the, in the message, I must not be funny enough. If I didn't get enough head nods or amens or anything like that, not that I know we're not an amen type of church. I kind of wish we were, okay? But, I, okay, I understand. There you go, Clayton. Amen, brother. So I understand. If, we, if, we don't get, if I don't get enough of that, I must not be profound enough as a pastor. I must not be profound and effective as a minister of the gospel. If the service wasn't full, and every seat filled, I must be failing as a pastor. I kid you not, these are the thoughts that come flooding in my mind week after week. Now listen, your self-talk might not look like that. I don't imagine it would. You're not a pastor. You're not up here preaching God's word every week. Like, and so I imagine you, you, your self-talk might look a little bit different, but how many of you know your self-talk still exists? It is still there. No matter what tape you're playing in your head, no matter what script you're living by, you need to know that you may be robbing yourself of the abundant life that Christ has for you because you're so busy listening to the inner critic within. You are so consumed and filled with listening to the inner critic within. And how many of you know our self-talk can be crippling? Our self-talk can cripple us at times. I mean, there, there were times, I, you could even ask my wife, there, there were times where after church, I would crawl into bed and I wouldn't want to get out because I felt awful about my self-worth, my significance, my purpose after anything. It could be, it could be a small thing. It, it could be crippling. And, and again, maybe for you, it's not, it's not how a Sunday service goes. Maybe for you, it's something else. But how many of you know, our self-talk can be crippling at times and it has a way of stealing from us, killing us and, and destroying us like the enemy in John 10.10. And so the question is, what do we do about that? What do we do about the inner critic within? You want to know how to overcome the inner critic within? Here it is. You need to train yourself with truth. You need to train yourself with truth. Friends, you got to hear this. The only way to combat lies in your life is with truth. The only way to defeat the lies of the enemy is to overcome it with the truth of heaven. That is the only way we defeat the lies. It is with truth. That's why Jesus said, you want to be free? Know the truth. And when you know the truth, it will what? It will set you free. 
Do you know that this David in this story of David and Goliath is the same David who wrote the Psalms that we have in the Bible? And have you ever noticed the thought pattern that plays out in almost every Psalm of David? You get a a window into David's thought life. Now, David wasn't perfect. We acknowledge that. We understand that. But, but I want to see just real, real briefly into the thought life of David. Here's how David's thought pattern went according to the Psalms. Life sucks, but God is good. I'm in a tough spot right now, but God is faithful. I don't know how to make sense of this. In fact, God, I'm not even sure that you're hearing me, but I am sure of this. You are good. Over and over and over, almost every Psalm of David reiterates this thought pattern. Life might not be going my way, but the truth is, God, you're good. You see, this is a person who have overridden his self-talk and his tendency to speak death into his life, and he has trained himself to speak truth over his life. Over and over again. Listen, friends, when it comes to self-talk, we're all going to do it, and so you might as well speak life over yourself. If you're going to talk to yourself, speak life and truth don't speak death. I mean, why are you going to do the work of the enemy for, your, for him, right? Like, if you're going to self-talk, make sure it's grounded and rooted in truth. And so, friends, here, just a practical principle and a question to ask yourself. When your self-talk starts spiraling out of control, and you know when those moments come, take a moment and ask yourself, what might God say to me in this moment? Simple question that can revolutionize your script What might God say to me in this moment? What might God say to me about this situation? Because what God speaks is truth. And the only way to defeat the lies in your life is with the truth of heaven. And so what is God saying to me right now in this moment, in the midst of me spiraling out of control? And so I've had to do that every week. No matter how a Sunday service goes, Lord, I know that I'm loved and accepted by you. No matter how many people laugh at my jokes, Lord, I I know you think I'm hilarious. No no matter how how little impact that I feel like I'm having, Lord, you've created me for a purpose, Lord, and I might not be seeing that purpose, but I'm holding on to the promise that you've given me a purpose that is bigger than my perspective. You see, friends, we need to train ourselves with truth. Speaking of perspective, the second enemy to our thought life is a limited perspective it's a limited perspective and what i mean by that is a lot of times we don't always know what god is up to right right we don't always know what god is up to in a given moment or situation in our lives and so here's our human tendency our human tendency is to interpret what we're going through through a very narrow and earthly human lens and so we go through some hardships in life and our faith gets totally rattled We go through some difficult seasons of life and we start questioning God and wondering if he's even there. But you see, what that's revealing is not so much information about God and who God is. What that's revealing is our limited human perspective. That's all that's revealing. It says nothing about who God is. It just shows that we are limited, finite human beings with a limited perspective. And that serves as an enemy to our thought life. Let me take you back to the story. We left off with Saul criticizing David for not having what it takes to take on Goliath, right? You're but a youth, right? You can't take on this man. 
Listen to what verse 34 says. David responds to Saul's concern. And listen to what David says. He says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. Like, get this. He goes on. He says, and if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David continues on in verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Guys, that's pretty bad, you know what? I mean, I don't, I don't care what you think about David, what you think about like a, a, a fairy shepherd boy. Like this is no fairy, okay? This is no pansy. This is a guy who struck down a lion. He says, if a, if a bear or a lion came and took one of my sheep away, I ripped it out of his mouth. And if he came against me, I stepped up to the plate. And his confidence, you can see the Lord, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. He's got me. And I love, I love how Saul responds here. Listen to what Saul says. Saul says, go, and the Lord be with you. Because, I mean, what else are you going to say after a resume like that, right? It's like, okay, I guess you're qualified. You don't seem to fit the bill in the ways that I would think. And it looks like the odds are stacked against you when I look at the giant Goliath that he is. But, hey, if your resume is true, go, and the Lord be with you. Listen, friends. The lion and the bear that you're facing right now in this current season of your life might simply be God's preparation for a Goliath to come. You don't know that when you're operating out of a limited perspective. Because of our limited perspective, when a lion or bear comes, all we see is the lion and the bear. All we see are the fangs and the claws. All we see are the hardships. All we see are the trials. All we see is the bottom of the pit that we feel like we are in. But how many of you know, the lion and the bear that you're facing right now, in whatever form that it might be showing up in, in this current season of your life, simply might be God's preparatory work for you to face a Goliath to come. But again, you wouldn't know that if you're operating out of a limited perspective. So the question is, what do we do about our limited perspective? It's not like we can see into the future and foresee a Goliath to come. Like, David didn't know he was going to step up to this giant Philistine from Gath named Goliath. He didn't know that. All David knew to do was faithfully fulfill his calling day after day. And friends, that is all we can do. Faithfully follow Jesus. You want to overcome the enemy of limited perspective? You focus on faithfully following Jesus. No matter how hard life gets, faithfully follow Jesus. No matter what kind of line or bear attacks, faithfully follow Jesus. You might feel like your world is falling apart into a million different pieces. Still yet, faithfully follow Jesus. Because on this side of heaven, you and I will never know what God is up to in our hardships and our difficulties. But I promise you this. God is in your difficulties and hardships. He's in it. What do you think? God wasn't in those moments when David was fighting off the bears and the lions to protect the sheep? 
Do you, think, do you think God is not with us in the moments where, where we feel like we are struggling to hold on to any little bit of hope that we have in life? Are, or do, you, do we really think that God is not in that? See, that's again our limited perspective clouding our thought life. You and I will never know what God is up to in, in those moments of hardships and difficulties. And so in those moments, all we can do is faithfully follow Jesus faithfully follow Jesus. And by God's grace, hopefully our perspective will broaden just a little bit to see what God is up to beyond just our hardships and difficulties. After this interaction between Saul and David, David finally makes his way out to the front of the battle line. After a little bit of wardrobe malfunction, he takes on Saul's armor. Saul's, David's like, this, this isn't for me. I can't do this. And, and so he just goes in his garb, his shepherd's garb, and what, what he's used to. And he finally makes it out to the front lines of the battle. And we pick back up for one last time in verse 41. And we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up with uh, taking it to verse 47, right before the actual fight goes down. And if you want to read on, you can read on at, at another time. But for this morning, I want to read up to that point. In verse 41, it says this. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. He looked down on him. He, he, he belittled him, for he was but a youth ruddy and handsome in appearance. By the way, I love that the scripture writer includes that little fact, that, that little tidbit, that he was handsome in appearance. I just think that's awesome, uh, which is the reason why I point out how handsome I am. That's just, it's biblical. That's all, that's, that's why I do it. So he's ruddy and handsome in appearance. Verse 43, and the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Again, there he goes, mouthing off, taunting the armies of God. Then David starts to speak up. And in verse 45, David says to the Philistine, I love this. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand this is where david had a mic just that's it boom this is where david is like here here's 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 the final enemy this is what i'm trying to point out here the third and final enemy of our mind is our source of confidence our source of confidence See, we all have different things in our minds that we cling to as our source of confidence, right? These are things that we use to validate ourselves or to, to prop ourselves up and make ourselves feel good about ourselves. These are things that we project onto the world so that the world might perceive us in a certain light and a certain lens, in a positive light. Right, And these can be anything. It can be a certain ability that you have. It can be an accolade. It could be an achievement. It could be a certain way that you perform uh, something or some task. It can be our success in a particular area. It can be our personality traits. Whatever it is, 
We all have something that we use as our source of confidence. And when that source gets rocked just a little, we get shaken up a whole lot. When that source of confidence that we have built our lives upon and that we cling to to validate ourselves and to feel important about ourselves, when that source of confidence gets rocked just a little bit, our lives get shaken up a lot of it. That's when our self-talk starts running. That's when we start feeling insecure and inadequate and unsure about ourselves. Like, I remember asking the gut-wrenching, soul-searching question at, some, uh, at one point in my journey with Jesus, would people still love me and value me if I had absolutely no wisdom to offer to anyone? Because you've you got to understand, a, a big source of my confidence has always been rooted in how I'm able to offer wisdom to people. In fact, ever since I was a young boy, people have always told me from a very young age, Dan, you, you seem to have wisdom, wisdom beyond your years. You seem wise beyond your years. And, and again, I don't say that to pat myself on the back. That, that's just kind of my life story where people have spoken that over and over. Enough times you start wondering, well, that's who I am. I'm, 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 I'm the wise sage. Dan, I'm Yoda, Min, right? Like I, that, that's, that's who I am. Like I, was, I am here to dispense wisdom. Right? Like, I'm here to dispense wisdom. And I ask myself, would people still value me? Would people still see me as important if I was stripped of all ability to dispense any wisdom? But did you notice that David's source of confidence had nothing to do with him or what he was able to do? He he didn't say, Goliath, Look what I got. I'm ready. Like, I, I, I have trained for this. I am ready for this moment. David's source of confidence had nothing to do with him. It was not tied to a sense of identity or his uniqueness. His confidence had nothing to do with him, but it had everything to do with God. It had everything to do with God's ability. You see, I think oftentimes we lose the battle up here because we have misplaced our source of confidence. We have misplaced our source of confidence. We're more concerned with self-confidence than God-confidence. We are more confident in trying to pursue confidence in self than going after the confidence of God. And so what's the remedy to that? What's the remedy to this source of misaligned confidence? And it's simple. It's one word. It's worship. Worship. You want to overcome the enemy of misplaced confidence in your life. You make much of God in your life. You magnify him and recognize him for who he is because church, here's what begins to happen. When God becomes bigger, your Goliaths become smaller. When God becomes bigger, your Goliaths become smaller. Some of us, we feel overwhelmed by the problems of our lives. Some of us might even categorically put those situations as Goliath situations. Goliath, I can't overcome this. Friends, it's not that your problem is too big. It might be that your view of God is too small. Do you hear me? It's not that your problem is insurmountable and impossible. It could be that you have forgotten that you serve a God of impossibles. That you have a God who is able to do the impossible. When God becomes your everything, your Goliaths, they become nothing. When God becomes your everything, The problems of our lives, the hardships of our lives, they become 
nothing. You see, we often lose the battles in our minds because we don't have a great sense of who God actually is. If we did, the inner critic inside of us wouldn't stand a chance. If we had a proper view of who God is, our perspective wouldn't be so limited and confined to our present struggles. And our source of confidence wouldn't be on us, but it would be on the eternal God and what he is able to do. It's worship. That's worship. It's more than just singing. It's more than just following a music band. Worship is making much of God in our lives. And having the proper view of who God actually is, that's worship. That's how we overcome misplaced sources of confidence. You see, friends, I understand that we are all different in a whole host of different ways. Many of us don't even know the folks in your own row, and many of us don't even know a large majority of these people in this room, perhaps. But this much I know, this one thing that we all have in common is this. We have a battle that we are constantly fighting that takes place up here. And it may be that we're not living the best versions of our lives because we're losing the battle up here. But what would it look like? What would it look like for a community of people, for the people of God, to train themselves with the truth of God and rewrite the script for our lives? That our self-talk wouldn't be leading charge in our lives, in our thought life, but it would be the voice of God that the truth of God would reign supreme? What would it look like to faithfully follow Jesus wherever he leads us, right? Like, not, not in the way that I led my group up the mountain, any, like, what, like wherever, wherever Jesus leads us, you're, you have made the conclusion, he is good, he is worth following, so I go and I faithfully follow Jesus wherever he leads me. What would it look like for us to worship the one true God with everything that we've got? and to have a proper perspective of who God actually is. I have a sneaking suspicion that if we were to do that, we would start experiencing the abundant life of Christ that he offers us in John chapter 10, 10, where he says, I came so that you can have life and have it abundantly. That's what I want for us, church, amen? That's what I want for you, and I hope that's what you want for yourself.